do you discriminate more on philosophy like anti-conservative versus pro-liberal? No. Our, our policies and our algorithms don't take into consideration any affiliation, philosophy, or viewpoint. That's hard to stomach. I'm not, I, I just, there wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this discussion if there wasn't a general agreement that, that your company has discriminated against conservatives, most of whom happen to be Republicans. That was Jack Dorsey answering a question from Representative Joe Barton, a Republican from Texas, during a hearing earlier this month about bias in the tech companies. Welcome to Bots and Bouts from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Burningham. If it sounds like the CEO of Twitter wasn't getting a lot of love from the Republican side of the aisle, he wasn't. Of course, Democrats have their own problems with the tech platforms right now. There's bot messaging, Russian interference, and fake news that proliferated on social media platforms in the run-up to the presidential election. If you want to know how serious these congressional hearings are for these companies, Jack Dorsey tweeted a graph of his heart rate throughout the affair. It was quite elevated for a man who walks three hours a day to work. And we know how Donald Trump feels about this because he's tweeted about it, especially with his concerns about bias against conservatives. And there's signs that this may all move beyond messaging. Just last week, Bloomberg reported on the draft of a memo that would direct federal antitrust and law enforcement officials to look at antitrust laws for, quote, online platforms, with an emphasis on online platform bias. No one is named, but online platforms seems like a pretty short list, especially when you consider the ones that have been in the news over bias lately. Look out Google, look out Facebook, look out Twitter, Washington is coming, and it wants blood. Today, I'm talking to a tech regulation expert. Bradley Tusk worked in politics. He helped Michael Bloomberg win the governorship in New York City. He was even Rod Blagojevich's deputy mayor in Chicago. Then he made some real money, helping companies like Uber and FanDuel bust through government regulations. Bradley Tusk, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Ballots. Hey, thanks for having me on. So I just finished your book. I got to say, I really enjoyed it although it left me with some depressing thoughts about our democracy. <laughs> it, it, it should. That's on purpose. If you both like the book and realize we got some problems, then, then I feel pretty good about how it went with you. What do you want people to take away from it? Um, two things, right? So specifically on the tech side, I want startups and people in the tech world to take politics seriously. What I have found over the years is that People in the Valley will take the engineering seriously. They'll take their fundraising seriously. They'll take their marketing seriously. But they just kind of take government and politics and regulation for granted and just assume that because they're so smart in every other field, they'll just be fine there too. And as we see time after time, that's not the case, right? There's this quote from Pericles from like a couple thousand years ago where he said, just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. And that's still true today, right? And whether it's Facebook and Google and Twitter very much feeling that now or Uber and Airbnb and lots of other startups kind of fighting through all these different entrenched interests, you got to take this stuff seriously. You got to prepare for uh, what's coming at you. If you're disrupting an industry, the people you're disrupting don't say thank you. They punch you back in the nose as hard as they can, and you've got to be ready for it. So that's that's number one. This, the second thing is the, the book concludes with – 
uh, a chapter on mobile voting. And so the thing I probably learned more than anything else in the 20 years I spent in government and politics is that 99.9% of politicians are desperately insecure, self-loathing people who can't live without the validation of holding office. It's like it's it's their oxygen. They literally can't. And so they're never going to make a decision that is for the public good if it's not in their political interest. But they're also highly rational people. So if in a typical primary, turnout is 12%, 15%, and because the districts are gerrymandered, whoever wins the primary in most cases automatically wins the general election, you know, they say, I have to make the, these specific people happy. And who are those people? They tend to be the most left-wing or the most right-wing because they're the ones who are energized and show up. Um, and so as a result, you have this extreme polarization and extreme dysfunction in Congress and state legislatures all over, all over the country because the politicians are just responding to the inputs they're given. Um, that would change dramatically if turnout changed dramatically. We have an election system that was designed 250 years ago for a totally agrarian society. We vote on Tuesdays because that's what was good for the farmers way back when. And it doesn't work. People don't show up for the polls, but we carry technology in all of our pockets that would allow us all to participate in elections. And thanks to blockchain, voting can now be done both mobily, securely, and with much greater participation. So, for example, say you're a Republican congressman from Florida and turnout in your district is 12%. You probably know that an assault weapon ban is a good idea, probably not a great idea to have people toting around AK-47s on the streets. But if half of that 12% are NRA members, you're not going to pass legislation uh, that bans assault weapons because you're going to get penalized for that in the next election. If turnout were 60% because people can now vote on their phone, you'd still have the NRA would be like 10% of the electorate instead of 50% of the electorate. And then all of a sudden the politics would flip completely and it would make sense to support an assault weapons ban. So, so clearly the inputs needed have to change to get different outputs and results in, in Congress and in our government. Um, so we started off uh, pretty small. Uh, West Virginia this past May, we uh, funded out of my foundation, Toss Montgomery Philanthropies, the cost for the state of West Virginia to do a pilot experiment uh, where they offer blockchain voting for members of deployed military in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, we're doing it again this, this November um, from the whole state. And uh, we're working with some different states right now, but announcing municipal and state elections for next year. And so my hope is that we can demonstrate that the technology works, uh, get people excited about it, and then ultimately be in a position where everyone can vote on their phones. So I got to say, I'm with you on the turnout. I worry about the cybersecurity implications of phone voting. Yeah, so you're totally right, too. And the two things I would say is, one, the system we have right now is wildly insecure, right? So think about, like, I was Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager. And the way that ultimately election night, you know, our votes were tabulated was literally, you know, old lady in some precinct in Queens calling the board of elections saying, you know, Bloomberg 232, Thompson 128. And that was it. That was the gospel, right? Just what some lady read off of a machine, assuming she read it correctly. So I know firsthand the system we have right now is totally not secure in the first place. And look, blockchain at the moment, no one has figured out any way to hack blockchain. You know, it's a permanent record. It's totally verifiable. It's distributed over thousands and thousands and thousands of machines. Um, so, you know, is it guaranteed perfect? No. And that's why we're starting with these little pilot programs like, you know, deployed military in West Virginia, because we want to make sure that it works. I don't see any solution other than letting people vote in their phones. And there's no way to make phone voting safe other than blockchain. So there's two of your kind of... Uh uh, career hijinks I want you to walk me through. The first is this Uber solution that you came up with, which ended up being your model for fixing regulation problems for tech companies. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, and, and you know, sometimes what the book really tries to get into is sometimes you want to beg for forgiveness and sometimes you want to ask for permission, and the book tries to help people understand you know, when to do each. But with Uber, we were facing a cartel in the taxi industry that plays very rough and very dirty. They give lots of money to local politicians, and in every single case as we tried to launch Uber, they use their campaign donations and their lobbyists to shut us down everywhere, and we finally realized that if we didn't fight back as hard as we possibly could – we wouldn't exist. And the way to do that was to rally our customers and real people who were sick of taking you know, dirty, unsafe, unfriendly taxis and wanted an alternative. And we needed to get them to weigh in with their city council members, with the mayor, with state legislators. They were only going to do that if they experienced Uber in the first place. So our strategy became launching a market, build as much customer base as we could. Uh, and then when the politicians tried to shut us down, rally those customers to show your average politician like that their real constituents actually care about this issue and, and want this to be allowed um, and use that to back them down. And we ended up doing that in 384 different markets across the U.S. Now, that worked well for Uber because it was the only way to survive. There are lots of other cases where it doesn't make sense to just roll out and deal with consequences later. So, for example, uh, FanDuel is a company that we've both invested in and work with. You know, They want to offer sports betting, but they're not going to start doing that in any state where they don't win a sports betting license from a state. The, the, the point of the book is to tell people think intelligently about the situation you're in, the context, the jurisdiction, the laws on the books, who you're disrupting, how politically powerful they are, uh, what would happen to you if you did go ahead without permission, and then use all of that information to make an intelligent decision. So the other one I want you to walk me through is Bloomberg's third campaign. And the reason why this one stung particularly for me was I was in New York at the time, working at the New York Times, and your plan was to kind of create this aura of invincibility, that the race was already settled before it even started. And I have to say, I don't think anyone questioned that. I mean, everyone I talked to seemed to have that in the back of their mind, like, oh, Bloomberg's got this thing locked up. Um, and yet you have a really simple analysis, which showed that it was going to be very close, and it ended up being very close. Tell me about kind of how you manipulated the press and created this outcome yeah. Um, so, look, Mike Bloomberg ran for mayor of New York City as a Republican three times. He was actually an independent, but needed a major party line to run on. The challenge is, if you're not the Democratic nominee for mayor in New York City, you're automatically walking in down 45 to nothing. The Democratic nominee, if it was you, me, anyone listening to this podcast, walks in with 45 percent of the vote, which means that to win, you've got to capture... 50.01% of the remaining 55, so basically all of it, and that's really, really hard to do. And in Mike's third term in the 2009 campaign, we had a lot of things working against us. We had changed the law on term limits to allow Mike to run for a third term. It was necessary but very unpopular. We were in the middle of the recession, and people worth $52 billion weren't particularly popular at the time. And then because Mike governed in a real way without really regards to politics, he did things that were necessary like enforce parking tickets or raise water rates to build a third water tunnel that were good public policy, but were not popular with our base and with our voters. So we knew it was going to be a really close election. Um, and what we knew is the only way to really win that election was to convince all the powers that be that it was going to be a route and that we were inevitable and invincible to keep them from all getting together. Because if every union and every Democratic Party official would have figured out, hey, we can beat these guys if we all pull our resources, um, they would have beaten us, right? So the, the campaign instead was a campaign of invincibility. We were up on the air starting that April, uh, and we're on the air basically all the way through Election Day. 
We rolled out an endorsement seven days a week, every single day. I think March 22nd, 2009 was the first one we did, and we ended uh, on Election Day itself. We knocked on two million doors. And the point was really just to have such an overwhelming show of force that strong candidates would be afraid to run against us and that any special interest would say, you know what, he's going to win. I don't need to piss these guys off. I'm just going to sit this one out. Um, and that's what happened, and, and basically it played out the way we expected, and we won, but not by much. Yeah, it ended up being a squeaker, which was sort of a surprise. Yeah, that was the one downside of the strategy is I knew the day after the election was going to be really ugly, right? Because I had spent a year persuading you guys that, you know, this was going to be a blowout uh, when I knew it wasn't. And then all of a sudden, you know, when the data actually came in, uh, we won by five. My, my hope was that we would somehow defy expectations and win by eight, and I'd be able to kind of get away with that. But, uh, but you know, I'd rather win by five than, than lose by 10 or one or whatever. So I'm going to ask the question, which I'm sure you haven't been asked at all this week. Um, is Mike Bloomberg going to run for president? Yeah, it's a great question. Amazingly, I have been asked that once <laughs> or twice already. You know, the, when he was in San Francisco last week, what I think he, he was talking about really was that in 2020, the climate probably isn't right for an independent bid for president. So the book uh, has a chapter on in 2016. He really thought about running for president. We put together a full campaign to run him as an independent. He ultimately decided not to run because he was afraid that his running would actually help Trump, and he didn't want to do that. Um, so for 2020, because of Trump, people are so partisan. They're so polarized. Either you love him or you hate him, but you kind of have a strong view either way that it doesn't feel like a year that the public says, let's try someone who's not from the system at all, um, which really means that if someone's going to successfully challenge Trump, it's going to be as a Democrat. So if Mike were to run, it would probably have to be as a Democrat. Um, will he run? I don't know. You know, there, there's the job of running for president and there's the job of being president. I know that he would be incredibly good at the job of being president. Um, but the job of running for president is a job performed traditionally well by politicians. And Mike's not really a politician. So, you know, he's going to have to decide, A, could he win as a Democrat? And B, is he willing to put himself through all the things it takes to run for office? Um, and if the answer is yes, then he'll run. And I think based on his track record and his credibility and his resources, he'll be a formidable candidate. And if not, then he'll support someone else. Who do you see as formidable on the Democrat side in 2020? You know, so I kind of look at it in camps as opposed to individuals simply because the list of plausible contenders is probably 20, 25 people long, right? So in terms of camps, one would be the ideologue. So Sanders, Warren, I think they're strong contenders because they're not career politicians. Uh, and I think that the public really wants someone who believes in something, even if they don't agree with everything they believe in. So I, I think that camp generally is pretty strong. Then there's the career politicians, probably headlined by Biden, but Cuomo, Gillibrand, Booker, you know, there's so many of them. Look, in this entire century, every time the Democrats have ran a career politician for president, they've lost. Al Gore lost, John Kerry lost, Hillary Clinton lost. And the public has made it abundantly clear they do not want to let the career politician to that job. That doesn't mean lots of career politicians don't want the job. Lots of them do. Lots of them are going to run. Um, but, but it worries me that they will lose to Trump if that happens. Um, third category would maybe a business person like a Bloomberg or a Howard Schultz or Oprah or someone like that. Um, the, the fourth might be like a mayor like Eric Garcetti uh, of Los Angeles or Mitch Landrieu of, of New Orleans. 
And the fifth might be kind of conservative Democrats or a place of people that come from more conservative areas, whether it's, you know, uh, Steve Bullock from Montana or, you know, maybe a, 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 a former military member um, who runs just from a different perspective completely. So my sense is we're going to have a couple of candidates from each one of those camps and they're going to fight it out over a really brutal primary campaign. And, you know, hopefully whoever wins is in a position to be Trump. If we could go back to the regulation side of things, in the wake of the 2016 election, tech and social media technology in particular has kind of been taking a beating from both sides. There's a lot of saber rattling going on in Congress. Do you think that there's a wave of regulation coming for tech? It's a really interesting question. And if you think about it historically, Facebook, Twitter, and Google didn't have to deal with the stuff that most of the startups I invest in have to deal with. For Facebook or Google, they were in frictionless environments because no one did this stuff before they did it. So they weren't disrupting anybody. So for a long time, they were just heralded as these incredible innovators. And, you know, models like Don't Be Evil were enough to carry the day, but eventually turned into mega corporations with huge influence on society. And then regulation comes. And so I think, um, yeah, one way or another, I mean, the, the different forms could be either antitrust legislation, which I think Google and Facebook and Amazon probably all have to at least you know, be prepared for. Uh, the EU yesterday announced they're looking at potential antitrust uh, issues into Amazon. Um, and then questions on either rights and responsibilities of, of social media platforms. No one's ever done that before, so it's hard to tell what form it takes. But the GDPR rules around privacy in Europe might be a good model for what's coming. You know, what's interesting also, since we just talked about the 2020 election, is which camp of Democrat emerges, right? Because if it ends up being someone from that populist camp, let's say it's Elizabeth Warren, you're going to have a populist in Elizabeth Warren on the left, a populist in Donald Trump on the right. Uh, and both of them are probably pretty eager to regulate tech, you know, maybe for different reasons, but they're eager to do it. Whereas if someone more centrist were elected, you know, they, they may be a little more... Uh, modest around that. So I think we'll see. But if I'm any of those companies, I am expecting that I'm going to have my hands full for the next couple of years. On one hand, I think it's complicated enough that people are afraid to wade in. But on the other, Congress has made some terrible digital decisions in the past. I wouldn't be surprised if they were to just ham-handedly jump into <laughs> the stuff that Facebook yep. and Twitter are dealing with. No, no question. I mean, what struck me in the Facebook hearings was two things. One, even though Zuckerberg was on the hot seat and he should have had a really hard time, he was smart enough to know that if you just let these idiots be idiots, they'll end up making fools of themselves. And by comparison, you'll look OK, which is exactly what happened. Right. Uh, he was really smart and kind of that rope it up strategy. But, but what I found really striking and disingenuous was that both sides were so afraid to just level with the American people. Right. Facebook wants you to think. You can keep in touch with your eighth grade best friend. You can share cat photos. All of your data is protected, and, and, and you don't have to worry about being harvested or monetized or anything else. And Congress wants you to think also that you, know, you can have uh, everything you want from Facebook and have total security. And the reality is that's not the business. The business is you get this connectivity. You get this ability to share things. And in return, you're giving them your data that they sell right, to advertisers to sell stuff back to you. That's the fundamental value proposition of Facebook. And I kind of feel like both sides are being dishonest with it uh, and saying, you know, you're supposed to have your cake and eat it too. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And I, and I really wish that both Zuckerberg and Congress had just been upfront about it because I think people can handle the truth. Okay, so let's do a quick lightning round off the big three. If you were Facebook and you're dealing with these privacy issues at the same time you're dealing with fake news, what sort of advice would you give the people running Facebook on how to deal with the government? 
Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, you know, don't try to spin them. It doesn't work. You just end up, even if you win the news cycle, you, you eventually lose. I think it's important to say, be very clear. Here are the systems we have. Here are the controls. This is brand new technology. So there's a lot that we don't know here. Here's where we think we have potential vulnerabilities. So let's sit down together and figure out what are the right public policies to address these vulnerabilities, right? And that might be privacy rules. That might be certain types of restrictions on what type of advertising or content can be showed on a social media platform. But they don't have the answers, and Congress certainly doesn't have the answers. And I think rather than pretending that you do, just acknowledge that this is far from perfect and sit down and try to work through it productively. Okay, so then you've got Twitter, which their big problems are artificial amplification through bots of certain messaging, kind of an abusive user base. What kind of advice would you give them? You know, it's it's interesting because to me, Twitter's problems are problems that the market should be able to correct a lot more so than Facebook. Um, everything you just said, bots or kind of, you know, really abusive behavior. Consumers can say, this platform is not for me. Um, I feel like a lot of these things are either fake or there's just people who are just way too nasty and choose not to use it. So I'm not sure there's as strong of a case for regulating Twitter as there is just if Twitter doesn't solve these problems, they may not be a viable business in five years or 10 years or something like that. So um, if I'm Twitter, I, I may make the case to say, this is our problem let us handle it. But I also know that because politicians need a win, I would at least have something prepared to say, here are new policies on bots or here are new policies on abusive behavior. But because everyone's definition of, of who's, who's abusive and who isn't is totally different and they completely are binary based on what party you're in, it's a fight they're never going to win. Okay. And then finally, let's let's do Google, which you know their biggest problem is probably how massive they are and the fact that they continue to grow really rapidly. They're also facing criticisms of being too liberal, although some of those arguments may not be entirely uh, made in good faith. Yeah, sure. What would you advise Google? I mean, a few things. One is, I, I look, maybe because I don't disagree with the stuff, but if Google employees were crying when Trump won or, or they were uh, against the travel ban, like I don't really see a problem with that. I'm not sure why a Google employee has any less of a First Amendment right than a Walmart employee. So that's number one. But in terms of their size, you know, I think for them, they really need to just fight it out with the Justice Department antitrust. So you could clearly see DOJ under a President Trump or a President Warren come at them much in the way the justice did at Microsoft in the 90s and say, you're a monopoly, we have to break you up. But they have to be able to prove very specific things in terms of exercise of monopoly power, abuse of consumers, things like that. And I'm not sure they can. So if you're Google, you know the answer a lot better than you or I do as to whether or not you're already violating these precepts. If you're not, then I think you want to structure your business to ensure that you continue not to and you fight it out. Google has the resources to fight this thing in court all day long. Uh, and if you are, then I would imagine that you want to say, okay, what can we live with and get out ahead of it? So early on, you made the very savvy decision to take equity in Uber. I think just given some back of the envelope math, you could probably retire and live a pretty nice life. Yeah. My last question for you is, what drives somebody like you? I think a lot of people think once they get that, once they make it, once they get that lottery ticket, they would just be living on a beach somewhere. What what keeps yeah, you in the game? It, it, it's, it's a really interesting question because I sold uh, a chunk of my Uber shares to SoftBank earlier this year. 
And what I was amazed by was I was expecting to feel this sort of elation, right? Like, you know, and instead it was just like, oh, okay, great. Like, it's nice to have all this money actually in the bank instead of on paper. I was able to give away a bunch of money to charity, help family. But but at the end of the day, like, I'm still me, right? And for me to be happy, I need action. I need conflict. I need to be writing and creating things. I need to be trying to change public policy. That's the stuff that gets me up in the morning. And, like, the size of my bank account, like, I'm not going to pretend money doesn't matter. It certainly helps to have a lot of money. I've had, I've lived without much money, and now I have money. And, yeah, it's better to have it than not, obviously. But um, the things that really get me excited every single day really aren't things that I could buy. It's things that I can accomplish, things that I can do, things that I can change. Uh, and that requires me to work harder than ever. So I'm actually working harder now than I ever have, even though from an economic standpoint, I don't have to work at all. All right. Bradley Tusk, the, the book I'll just mention, The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics. That's it for Bots and Bouts this week. Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to Sarah Giletti for field recording and to my producer, Leah Hitchens. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm Grant E.B. Thanks for listening. I'm Grant Burningham. <laughs>